contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Hello, OFAD lads and lasses. I am Andrew Smith. I am here today solo. Caleb's not here because, well, it doesn't matter. Um, It is Thursday, August 17th. And so the first order of business is, it is the uh, end of our summer deliveryway 2023. And we did say when we rolled that contest out that we would announce on this week's show who the winners are. Well, there was one minor issue with that. And that is that the only piece of information we collect on entrance into that contest is their email address. So if I were going to announce who won, that would mean that I would have to read your email address on the show. And you probably don't want me to do that. However, just know that a couple of you did in fact win and we will be contacting you in the next few days to find out how you want us to get you your copy of In the Beginning by Cornelis Van Dam. And if I don't contact you in the next few days, that means you didn't win. Thanks for playing. But uh, you should still get the book because it's good and it will help you. So like I said, I'm here solo today. I'm going to talk about a subject that uh, doesn't get a lot of attention, but I would like to give it some attention. And uh, so here goes nothing or everything or... What am I even talking about? I don't know. Um, The topic I want to talk about today is the accreditation of theological seminaries, particularly in our Presbyterian and Reformed world. And that pertains uh, to a particular accreditation body. And if you're like, what on earth are you talking about? Well, don't worry. I'm going to explain it to you. Now, the reason that I want to look into this subject is to answer a larger question that some things I've done in the last year or so and have been researching for a few years now on my own. Um, Basically, I want to answer a particular question. Why do seminaries drift leftward? Why do institutions of higher learning, even Christian ones, even ones that are supposed to be biblical and confessional ones, why do they liberalize? Why do they seem to inevitably spiral down towards being these places where strange doctrine is taught and ways that it is introduced into our churches. Um, And I've done a couple of other things towards this end. Sometime last year, I did a piece on federal aid money that was awarded during the COVID-19 pandemic. uh, And some of the issues with that, how our Presbyterian and Reformed seminaries took that money to the tune of millions of dollars and some of the troubling stipulations that came along with that. There was requirements in applying for those funds to comply with all federal non-discrimination laws and regulations and such, which is especially problematic, for instance, this side of the Bostock decision, when federal non-discrimination has been expanded to include issues of sexual orientation and gender identity. It's also these non-discrimination ordinances and policies that are used to promote ideologies like critical race theory and liberation theology, things that as Christians, uh, they're not biblical, they're not in keeping with our doctrinal standards, and they're problematic. Um, 
so that was one. And then also last year, I, sometime I don't remember exactly when, but I went on the Restless podcast as a guest to try to help answer the question, why are teaching elders or ministers uh, generally more liberal than their ruling elder counterparts? And part of that is they go to seminary. But then the question arises, well, what is it about seminaries that makes them lean this way, makes them seem to slide liberal over time? Well, there's various forces in play. I did mention the money aspect, and I, I discussed that in some detail in that COVID project. It's still out there on our website, onceforalldelivered.com. You can go look it up. I got a bunch of charts and numbers and all sorts of fun stuff to talk about this money and what it means. Um, but another layer to this that I think we need to talk about, and it doesn't get enough attention, is accreditation. Um so I want to talk today about the accreditation of seminaries and some of the issues with that and why we as Christians, why we as members of Christ Church should care. So big first question, what is accreditation? Accreditation in many countries is a function of government, but in the United States, it's actually not. It's primarily the work of non-governmental organizations, NGOs. These big nonprofit entities that are not the government, but uh, seem to wield a certain amount of power given and endorsed by the government towards certain ends. The big dog of accreditation in the United States is the Council for Higher Education Accreditation. It's an NGO that's not part of the government, though it does work in close collaboration with the U.S. Department of Education. And they define accreditation as review of the quality of higher education institutions and programs. In the United States, accreditation is a major way that students, families, government officials, and the press know that an institution or program provides a quality education. Okay, fine. In theory, that sounds decent enough. Something worth having. Um, so what's accreditation for? Well, one of the main impetuses behind accreditation is to prevent diploma mills, to prevent fake schools where you can just pay a certain amount of money and get what looks like a degree from what looks like a school. Uh, but in reality, it's not real. You didn't do the work. You didn't learn the things you need to know to hold such a degree. Um, there used to be and still is in some places a major problem with that fake schools and fake degrees so accreditation evaluates schools and programs and make sure that they're legitimate and make sure that they're actually providing the education that they claim to again a fine enough end in itself but why does accreditation matter why is it important for a school to be accredited other than to simply for it to be known that it's not a diploma mill well, accreditation is necessary to receive a lot of certain benefits. It is necessary to receive government funding. It comes back to the money again, doesn't it? Uh, in states that do state aid to schools and then federal grants, federal aid and federal student loans, to participate in any of these programs, you typically have to have an accredited school. It's also usually required by tuition assistance programs. So if you work for an employer and that employer will pay your tuition to go to school, uh, that usually requires going to an accredited school or an accredited program. Um, so that quality control aspect of accreditation is used to make sure that, you know, entities that spend money on education are actually spending money on education. 
It's also important when it comes to the transfer of credits between institutions. Uh, if the school is not accredited, there's a decent chance that your credits there aren't going to transfer to any other school because rather than knowing what other schools are doing, uh, schools that receive transfer credits often just rely on the accreditation to say, okay, these credits are real, these courses are real, and we can accept them. Um, it's also important accreditation for determining admissions into graduate and postgraduate programs. Say you want to go for a master's or a PhD, they're going to want that your previous bachelor's or master's most likely to have been accredited, at least in the U.S. There's exceptions to all of this, but, but in general, this is the way it goes. Also, many licensing and credentialing bodies in professions and trades require accredited degrees from accredited schools in order to practice in that profession. So who does accrediting? I mentioned that there's these non-governmental organizations. And there's two major types of accreditors. There are regional accreditors. Um, so there's ones all over the country. Ones in areas I've been are like the North Central Association of Colleges and Schools or WASC, when I was out in California, the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. These essentially accredit all the higher education institutions in an area of the country. And they accredit all different kinds of schools. They can accredit your basic, you know, two-year, four-year colleges, as well as graduate schools and professional schools. But then there are also program-specific accreditors. So they accredit specific programs, specific disciplines. So you can have accreditors that regulate medical schools or law schools, education schools, business schools. And, of course, there is accrediting and uh, there are accreditors for theological schools. So theological schools have accreditors, program accreditors, and the main player as a program accreditor for theological schools in the United States and Canada is, it's all in the name, the Association for Theological Schools in the United States and Canada. Now, and they essentially accredit all seminaries, all theological schools, and we'll go into some of the detail a little later on as to just how big of a tent they have. But what does this particularly have to do with our Presbyterian and Reformed seminaries? While our interests sometimes veer outside of this, it once for all delivered, we're Reformed. I'm Presbyterian, Caleb's Dutch Reformed, and so this is the main area we're interested. Well, most big, I say big in quotes, Reformed seminaries, because nothing we have is that big. We're kind of we're kind of small here in the Reformed world, but. Uh, most of our more prominent schools are ATS accredited. RTS, both Westminster's, Philadelphia and California, Covenant, Mid-America Reform Seminary, Knox, PRTS, RPTS, on and on and on it goes. Uh, almost all of these schools carry ATS accreditation. The lone notable exception would be Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. They have, uh, by conviction, uh, chosen not to be accredited. So, at least not accredited by any of these sorts of bodies. Uh, now, there are other smaller regional reform seminaries that aren't ATS accredited. So you could think, for instance, of Heidelberg Seminary out here in South Dakota. They're mainly affiliated with the Reformed Church in the United States, uh, RCUS, a small German Reformed denomination. I'll talk about them a little more later, too. 
Um, New Geneva Seminary in Colorado is another one. There's Birmingham Theological School in Alabama. Uh, there's some of these smaller regional Presbyterian and Reformed seminaries that aren't accredited, but in general, all the major players are, again, except Greenville. Um, they don't. So these schools that don't have this accreditation, there's certain benefits they don't get, certain things they're missing out on, all this government funding, uh, the ability to use tuition assistance programs and such. That's all limited if you don't want to play the accreditation game. So I mentioned ATS, this main accrediting body of schools in the U.S. and Canada. So what are they? They were formed in 1918. They've been around a while. They've been around over 100 years. They accredit a very broad range of schools. They do accredit Protestant schools, but they also accredit Catholic, Orthodox, uh, Mainline. Again, even many like large state schools. Um, have accreditation through ATS, state schools that have theological programs within them. So it includes our NAPARC adjacent seminaries. I've listed some of them before. It also includes things like Southern Baptist seminaries. It includes the big evangelical schools like Moody and Wheaton and Fuller and Dallas Theological and Biola and all of these. Again, it also includes mainline seminaries, Princeton, Yale, Harvard, the Ivy League, you know, these used to be decent Orthodox theological schools. Now they're wacky and liberal and we wouldn't trust them. You can think of schools like Union Theological Seminary in New York City. This is a place recently famous for praying to plants. It was also the longtime employer of James Cone, the father of black liberation theology. You think of a school like Duke Divinity, uh, a notoriously liberal and notoriously expensive school. All this to say, ATS and all the schools it accredits is the biggest of big tents. It's very, very uninterested in a particular biblical or theological commitments. Again, biggest of big tent that it can fit all of these things in us. Now, if you're part of the Presbyterian and Reformed world or even just the conservative world, Sorry, been talking too long. Got to drink a little water. Um, there's a bit of irony in this and that this brings together things that don't necessarily fit together. You can think of some of the history of our Presbyterian and Reformed institutions. Like you could think of how J. Gresham Machen got ran out of Princeton for refusing to bow the knee to liberalism. And he went and founded Westminster Seminary. Well, under the umbrella of ATS... Westminster and Princeton, they're accredited by the same body. Isn't that interesting? Um, Mid-America Reform Seminary was founded in many ways in reaction to the liberalism of Calvin Seminary and the Christian Reform Church, but they're both accredited by ATS. You have things like the Southern Baptists and the American Baptists. Their schools are accredited together by ATS. So again, you have these very divergent uh, schools, these very divergent beliefs, all existing in this big tent that is ATS. Now, if that doesn't start to maybe, you know, perk up your radar a little bit and think, hmm, that sounds a little odd. How does that work out exactly? Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to walk you through some of the ATS's policies and procedures and such. And I want to look at them under three major headings, three major issues and areas of concern that I think we need to look at and we need to think about and question 
our involvement in such a thing. So the first, um, by the way, if you're listening on the audio, I'll read uh, the things that I'm about to go through. So if you can't see, that's okay. But if you do have the video, I am going to be throwing up on my screen here a bunch of uh, pictures, screenshots from ATS's website and from their documents. So I've got the sources here. I'm not just making stuff up. Uh, but again, if you're this listening on the audio podcast, I'll, I'll tell you enough to, to know what's up. So, uh, the first is in the area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the infamous acronym DEI, some more fittingly call it DIE, but this has basically been the, uh, the rallying cry for the pushing of social justice agendas for critical race theory. Uh, liberation theology, all these various things, both into the church, into businesses, all these sorts of things. Been a real hot button issue for the last few years. Well, ATS very much in its policies and documents and such shows a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, as pretty much all of higher education does. And I want to show you some of the proof. So the ATS has a set of core values, basically their, their main operational principles, what they're here for. And you will notice if you're looking, but if not, I'll tell you, their number one core value listed on their website on their core values is diversity. And this is what they say about it. ATS is committed to diversity that is a visible sign of God's intention for humanity. The association values the multiple forms of diversity that exist among the member schools and encourages each school to continuously define and demonstrate its own commitment to, to diversity within the context of its mission, history, constituency, educational practices, structures, and theological commitments. So number one core value uh, for ATS, the Association of Theological Schools, is diversity. Note that it's not the Bible. It's not theology. It's not even Christianity. No, number one core value of ATS is diversity. Now on the same page on the website, after the core values, they add this. They say, in addition to these core values, the association values formal education for ministerial leadership and advocates on behalf of its benefit for religious leaders, religious institutions, and the work of religion in broader publics. And then this values justice in society and institutions it seeks to embody justice in its organizational life values accountability for student learning and both values and advocates for quality in the practice of ministry. So they want to embody justice. When you embody something, you're essentially saying you want to be that thing. You want the main body that accredits our theological schools. They want uh, to be an instrument of justice. And that is their number one core value. And it's what they list here is a priority of theirs even before accountability and learning, quality and practice of ministry. It's diversity before all else. And you'll see this as a recurring theme as we continue to work through some of these documents. Um, but wait, there's more. So the ATS has a couple of major policy documents that I'll be referring to. The first is the standards of accreditation. So this basically lists the things that if you want to be accredited by ATS, this is what your school should do. This is what your school should look like. Uh, again, it's on their website, so you don't have to just take my word on this stuff. You can go look for yourself and see what it says. 
Uh, so 1.5, the school acts with integrity by valuing, defining, and demonstrating diversity within the context of its mission, history, constituency, and theological commitments. In this, the school has a publicly available stance on diversity that describes its understanding of and commitment to this membership-wide shared value, and the school uses that stance to enhance its diversity. So a theological school must have a stance on diversity, it must express its understanding and commitments to diversity, and it must enhance its diversity. It must be constantly pressing towards diversity. Um Again, it's core value number one. If you're ATS, this is what you have to do. Um, continuing on, same document, uh, 3.3. The school demonstrates intercultural competency in student learning and formation by helping students understand, respect, engage, and learn from diverse communities and multicultural perspectives inside and outside the classroom. So again, this emphasis on diverse multicultural um now you might be asking well isn't diversity a good thing well yeah i mean as far as we're diverse and yet united in one faith a faith once for all delivered title reference um sure okay fine diversity there but the problem and we'll start to see this as we go along here is that this is a, a diversity that presses beyond this there's an interest in diversity beyond our biblical and confessional bounds that becomes very problematic. Um, so for instance, 4.3, which talks about the Master of Divinity, which is the standard degree that ministers get. Um, it talks about these four areas, these four learning outcomes for the Master of Divinity. So one, it says religious, yeah, religious heritage, including understanding of scripture, Fine. The theological traditions and schools of the school's faith community. Fine. But then in the broader heritage of other relevant religious traditions. Um, and then next, cultural context, including attention to cultural and social issues. So social justice again, to global awareness and engagement and to the multi-faith and multicultural nature of the societies in which students may serve. Now, it almost sounds here like we're starting to get into interfaith language, the language of things like interfaith dialogue, where we're going to get the Christians and the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Mormons and the atheists all together. And we're going to just put aside our, our differences and talk about what really matters. Um, I don't know. It just sounds like we're kind of heading in that direction. Uh it's not enough that you're trained within your tradition to work within your tradition, but you have to be constantly navel gazing at, and also just constantly looking outside to make sure you're diverse enough and to make sure that you're incorporating other traditions, even though they may be false and heretical traditions. Uh, here's another one, 7.3, pertaining to admissions policies. It says these policies are fairly implemented and encourage diversity appropriate to the school's context and theological commitments. Now, I don't know if this has to be revised in light of uh, recent rulings on affirmative action. I'm not a lawyer or a judge, so who knows. Um, but yeah, diversity diversity before all else in recruitment. Um so what kind of diversity are we talking about? Are we talking about uh, racial, ethnic diversity? Okay. 
but are we talking about theological diversity? Because in some of these things, as we go along, we'll start to see what seems to be a call for theological diversity. Then there's definitely going to be a call for sexual diversity, at least as it pertains to the role of women. We'll get to that in a minute. So uh, what, what's ATS really after? What are they really looking here for here under core value number one? Uh, same document, 7.8, student financial aid and borrowing. The school has equitable, there's that word, equity, and non-discriminatory systems for processing financial aid that meet all applicable laws and regulations. Now, again, people will ask, well, is discrimination good? Well, again, what are we discriminating? Nobody doesn't believe in discrimination. Let's say we have a school and their purpose is to train ministers that means we're not admitting and we're not giving financial aid to women. Um, or are we? We'll get to that in a minute. Um, you know, if we're a Presbyterian school, then we're not so interested in admitting Eastern Orthodox students. They got their own schools. Let them go study there. Um, or we're not interested in admitting atheists. Um, so we are going to discriminate in our admission because we're admitting uh, people of a specific faith for a specific purpose. Um, and I just think this emphasis on non-discrimination really starts to muddy those waters in some troubling ways. And we'll see that more as we go along. 8.2, the composition of the faculty is sufficient in number and diversity demographically and educationally. So demographically, we would be talking issues of, of race and of sex and of of things of that sort, but then also educationally. So what does that mean? Um, I mean, in a certain sense, you don't want schools to be echo chambers. I get a little wary when a school's entire faculty is made up of people that graduated there, that particular school. But I get a little wary also when like we're supposed to be a reformed school and we've got a bunch of guys who hold degrees from outside our faith tradition or uh, seem to have a certain affinity for things that, you know, aren't a part of our churches and aren't a part of our tradition. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a backwards triglodyte and the problem is me. But um, continuing. Um, now, this is another issue we'll come back later to this freedom of inquiry. Um, in fact, I'm just going to leave that aside. We will come back to that later. But then 8.8 .8 of the same document, the faculty role in teaching and learning includes faculty sharing their expertise with students, using the effective pedagogies, being available to students, providing regular and prompt feedback to students. Fine, fine. Respecting and engaging the diversities that students bring to their educational experiences. So all these other things we've already talked about. And then enhancing students' cap capacities to serve in a religiously diverse multicultural and globally interconnected world. Now, just to be honest, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I just preached on John 14 and how Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Religious diversity is not something that I am interested in. And as Christians, we shouldn't be interested in it. We want people to bow the knee to Christ and confess Christ and believe Christ and receive salvation in Christ. Uh, miss me with religious diversity. 
Uh, 10.2, the school publishes and consistently applies personnel policies and procedures that ensure a safe, fair, and productive environment, including those regarding procedural, fairness, sexual harassment, and abuse, other forms of misconduct, non-discrimination, there it is again, um, which apparently includes religious diversity, you know, no, no, we can't discriminate on religion even though we're a theological school, um, or at least we're being very murky about it. And on and on that policy goes various other things that they should have in policy. So you can kind of see in these policies, you can see in these documents, particular commitment to a diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda within the ATS, which accredits almost all of our seminaries. Um, boy, really makes you wonder, really makes you think, especially when you see some of the things and some of the ideas that seminaries are cranking out these days. Um, but the next major issue, so besides DEI, it's related and sort of continuing on that is the role of women. So the ATS has a women in leadership initiative. They very actively want to push, uh, women as students at theological schools, as faculty at theological schools, and as leaders and administrators at theological schools. They are committed to that. You see this in this Women in Leadership Initiative. I'm also going to bring up a document here. This is the other major document, the uh, policy guidelines for member schools of the um, ATS. So basically, we, policy on policy. What kind of policy should an ATS school have? Um, and this is 2.a.4 of these policy guidelines. It says, theological schools should make serious efforts to appoint women faculty members faculty members from minority groups, and young faculty members so that academic discourse may be broadened and the freedom to teach and to do research be extended to groups not now adequately represented. So, again, you have the ATS in their policy guidelines saying that its member schools need to hire faculty and administrators and such. Um, it's elsewhere applied to administrators and such, but they need to get them from... Uh, these groups and according to these criteria now leaving aside you know the matter of of ethnic minorities and such well what about women faculty members well if we're talking about seminaries that exist to at least primarily exist to train ministers and if we're in these uh conservative presbyterian and reformed denominations we don't believe that women can be ministers and if women are not qualified to be ministers, why are they qualified to teach ministers to instill the knowledge that ministers need to do their job? There seems to be a bit of contradiction in purpose there. Um, we really need to ask ourselves about that. But also to uh, young faculty members. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have young faculty members. You know, it's in the Bible. You know, Paul's writes to Timothy uh, you know, don't let them despise you because of your youth. Uh, but also, there is a certain wisdom and experience that's gained with age and that's gained with time. And I guess ATS doesn't really want you thinking about that or considering that. Um, seems like if you're an older Anglo male, you might be on the outside looking in if uh, schools are really taking these ATS guidelines seriously. Uh, and then the third major issue 
besides the role of women and besides diversity, equity, and inclusion, comes down to academic freedom and confessional disputes. So all of our seminaries in the NAPARC world, I mean, they would say they're confessional. They'd they would say they subscribe the Westminster standards and or the three forms of unity. But what does ATS have to say about that? Well, this is from the policy guidelines 1.B. In pursuit of the inquiry for truth, a theological school which has a confessional or doctrinal standard may expect that its faculty subscribe to that standard. Okay, yeah, we want that. And the requirement for such subscription should be mutually understood at the time of their affiliation with the institution. Okay, fine. The question of a faculty member's adherence to the standard may be opened according to special, uh, yeah, according to specified procedures. Okay, fine. So we have procedures when there are problems. But then here's where things start to get a little dicey. It says any challenge to the confessional or doctrinal regularity of a faculty member should be subject to open hearing before the faculty member's colleagues and before the governing board of the school after consultation with students. So essentially, if there's a confessional dispute, it's not a matter for the church. It is a matter for the academics. It's a matter for the school itself and even its students to adjudicate. It's not a matter for the church. And then in this next paragraph, you see that made all the more clear. When controversy arises within a religious body concerning the understanding of its confessional or doctrinal standards, the governing body of the school which subscribes to such standards should provide its faculty members with all appropriate procedural safeguards for the protection of academic freedom. So basically it boils down to this. If there is a dispute about a professor's doctrine and teaching as it pertains to the Bible and confessional standards, and that becomes a controversy or an issue in the church, the school's job is not to uh, ensure that subscription, at least as far as ATS is concerned, their job is not to ensure that they actually uphold their vows and are faithful to their doctrinal standards. No, the school's job, the school's burden is to protect academic freedom. Now you might be asking the question, well, isn't academic freedom good? Well, um, just like nobody truly believes in non-discrimination, nobody truly believes in academic freedom. Well, what do I mean? Well, I mean, like, if you're going to a medical school uh, and you're going to learn how to be a doctor, they shouldn't be teaching you like they used to do back in the 1950s that we should just give kids lobotomies for any old reason. Uh, academic freedom extends not that far. Um, or, you know, back in the Middle Ages where the solution for many illnesses and maladies was to just bleed people out. You know, if you bleed enough blood, then whatever's wrong with you might get better. We don't do that anymore. And you don't have the academic freedom to go to medical school and learn and practice those things because we realize that they're bad. We realize that they're harmful. We realize that they don't work. Um, well, the same is true of theological schools. If we have confessional standards, uh, it's because we understand that there are things that are true and there are things that are false and um, there are doctrines that are false and there are false teachers. And so, yeah, we're going to uh, not accept that. But no, for the schools, if they want to be part of ATS, their their main interest needs to be in protecting academic freedom, even though, again, like I said, Academic freedom is not a good in itself, and nobody believes in it 
uh, as an absolute unquestioned good in itself. Um, so I think it's problematic that when there's a confessional doctrinal dispute, you see this, it's always, well, academic freedom, academic freedom, we have to protect that. And you've seen this historically, like when there's uh, professors at seminaries that become embroiled in controversy about their teachings, there seems to be a tendency among the schools to circle the wagons to protect their guys. Um, and even faculty or such who do come out and speak against them, they tend to lose their jobs. Uh, just so happens. Um, I mean, maybe some of that's the seminary's own hearts and intentions, but you also see there's this external pressure from ATS that they have to protect their faculty, even, it seems, against the church. Uh, here's some more. Uh, one point D of the policy guidelines. Teachers should have freedom in the classroom to discuss the subjects in which they have competence and may claim to be specialists without harassment or limitations. So basically teach the things in which you are an expert. Expertise governs, not doctrinal or confessional fidelity. And then there's a footnote attached to this one. It says, as members of an academic institution, professors seek above all to be effective teachers and scholars. Although professors observe the stated regulations of the institution, provided the regulations do not contravene academic freedom, they maintain their right to criticize and seek revision. So again, you can't. your policies and regulations cannot contravene academic freedom. So I guess if your policy includes uh, beliefs in the Bible and beliefs, you know, includes confessional standards, can't contravene academic freedom, and your professors, even if they sign up for that confessional standard, they maintain their right to criticize and seek revision. So at least according to the ATS rules, you know, you can say you're confessional and the school can require you to be confessional, but they can't actually enforce confessional orthodoxy on their professors. I think you can see just how big of a problem this could be uh, in a seminary environment. And then finally, ATS regards it as fundamental. This is uh, 6.B of the policy guidelines. ATS regards it as fundamentally inappropriate for member schools to be subjected to accreditation, accreditation there emphasized in italics, from any non-peer body or agency, ecclesiastical or other. Evaluation, however, for institutional purposes, may well come from ecclesiastical bodies or others. So basically, ATS is saying accreditation is our thing, and the church has no right to be involved in that. They can evaluate whatever that means, but accreditation is our thing, and the church basically needs to stay out and mind its own business. So you can see here in these policy guidelines of ATS a certain prejudice, a certain, uh, I would dare almost say opposition to the enforcement of any kind of doctrinal fidelity among professors at theological schools, which includes our seminaries. So... Those are the three kind of big categories of issues, DEI issues, and then women's issues, and then issues of academic freedom. And as we see, as we look at the ATS's policies and documents, it holds some problematic stances on these. So, uh, what do you all think about this? You might be thinking, ah, oh, Andrew, you're just being too cynical when you're reading of this, uh, 
It, it surely can't be that bad, can it? Well, maybe it's not. I mean, we do have our schools that do consist of ministers in our denominations. And, um, you know, maybe they're just doing the best they can within this framework. But um, they are within this framework. And I'd say this framework itself is troubling. And, you know, I've raised as we've gone along some of the potential objections. Well, don't we want diversity? Well, I mean, diversity to a point, diversity within the Christian faith, diversity within our theological tradition, diversity that contends for the faith once for all delivered. But uh, diversity as an ultimate end in itself is not, it's not that, it's not it. Um, it's not diversity as number one core value. It's not diversity at all costs. It's certainly not religious diversity, diversity that uh, goes outside of the doctrinal standards and then has to be protected by the schools lest they risk their accreditation status. That's not the kind of diversity that we're interested in. We're not interested in diversity that contradicts God's word, that contradicts our doctrine. Uh, don't we want women in leadership? Well, I've already put my cards on the table there. If we're talking about the Christian ministry, uh, which is restricted to men biblically, um, you know, leaving aside whatever else you might think of women in leadership in other parts of society, in this area, certainly not. Um, if the goal is training ministers, uh, they need to be trained by people who are qualified to be ministers and those who actually have the knowledge and expertise and experience to be ministers in order to impart that to other future ministers. Um, again, we seem to have these contradictory purposes and ends. Or don't we want academic freedom? Well, again, not as an absolute. Nobody believes in absolute academic freedom. And in fact, academic freedom almost always uh, punches right. So if you want to be conservative, if you want to keep things the way they are, if you want to operate uh, according to scripture and within biblical doctrine, academic freedom is always used to break away from that. And we kind of saw in the policies how the the ability to do that is built in. Um, but then it always is kinder to those who want to go outside, those who want to be progressives, those who want to teach strange and foreign and false doctrine. Well, they get protected by academic freedom. Academic freedom goes to bat for them. Again, even though, like I said, no one does, or at least no one should believe in academic freedom as an absolute. So uh, just to sort of tie a bow on that part, we really need to think about the things that we view as goods and why we think they are good. We have imbibed so much of modernism and postmodernism and feminism and all the things that go with it that we think of things like diversity and academic freedom and such as unquestioned goods when they're not unquestioned goods. They're not absolute goods. They're good in the ways in which they serve good ends. Um, you know, they're good in which they promote, they're good in the ways they promote the ultimate good, which is our chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if they are hostile to those, and they are against those, and if they're being wielded to undermine these, then no. Uh, these are not unquestioned goods, and they need to be reevaluated, and the way we think about them and approach them needs to be adjusted. So, I've given you a lot of bad news here about ATS accreditation. Do I have any proposed solutions? Well, I'll just say at the outset, I don't think that we can fix ATS. 
I wouldn't expect an organization like this to be reformed or rehabilitated. I think they, you see in their policies what they're committed to, and there are things that from a Christian worldview I don't think we can or should be comfortable with in our seminaries, in our schools that train ministers. Um, if you just look at the makeup of ATS, conservative, confessional, orthodox schools, there's probably too few of them to make a real difference on ATS when they're up against the Ivies and the big state schools and the mainline schools. And especially since, I mean, many of our own schools are more and more captured with pro by problematic ideology and by progressivism. It's like, how much of a resistance could we even mount if we decided we wanted to? Um, I don't think we can fix ATS. So then it would seem then where we're left to go is I don't think that schools should be aligned with an organization like this that opposes our fundamental values and purposes. So for instance, our churches, our denominations oppose women's ordination. Um, we shouldn't be allowing the schools that we promote and that we support, uh, to be ceding control to an organization like this that demands women in leadership. Um, those are contrary purposes. They don't go together. I think that schools that believe in the true Catholicity of the church, the unity of God's people uh, across racial and ethnic lines, you know, how God is calling for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Um, we should oppose ideologies like critical race theory like liberation theology that seek to destroy that unity, that seek to divide us along the lines that Christ uh, has broken down, uh, the dividing walls that he has broken down. And we should not affiliate with and be controlled by those who are clearly influenced by these godless and evil ideologies. And ATS seems to show that they're very much on board with these things. So... Bottom line, I don't think our seminaries should be a part of ATS anymore, and they shouldn't be a part of other accrediting bodies that demand similar things. I realize that's a big ask. I realize that uh, this would require sacrifice on the part of these institutions. And if we're not going to do this, then we have to ask, well, what might that look like? Do we need to form alternative accreditation bodies? There have been efforts to do things like this. There's a body called ARTS. I think it's like the Association of Reform theological schools or something like that and it includes some like those minor regional seminaries I, I named earlier but it's not a recognized accrediting body it doesn't get any of these benefits that come with accreditation um and i can just tell you in this legal and regulatory and political environment in which we live i don't think any accreditation body that is particularly committed to confessional and orthodox and conservative christian beliefs is probably going to get those kinds of benefits. Um, if we're going to live consistently with our principles here, it probably just means losing those benefits and leaving them behind. So that means no more government money, no more employer reimbursement type money. Um, it means that churches, if they want to have seminaries, if they want to have theological schools and Christians, are going to have to be more diligent and more faithful to support these schools so that they can continue to operate or they need to provide alternatives. Maybe we're heading more for a world where churches and presbyteries and denominations need to take more direct ownership of training their ministers and not farming it out to these schools 
that seem to operate under a different set of principles than those we should be comfortable with. Um, it also means things like we're going to have to give up our academic prestige. Our schools may no longer be able to be preparatory schools for uh, PhD programs. You might not be able to go to one of our schools and then go get your Ivy League or big state school or fancy European PhD. Um, you know, maybe that's too bad, but it, it's better to give that up than to allow corrupting ideologies into the church. Um, you know, sometimes that's those sort of things are the price you have to pay. Um, it means that our seminaries are going to need to be more narrowly focused, which I think they should anyway. Cut these other programs, focus on training ministers, um, get rid of all these other things, because it just allows more of these students with these different and divergent and academic interests in. Focus on training ministers. Now that means, again, fewer students because you're specializing. It means fewer money because they're paying less. It means they're, they're either go, the schools are either going to need more support or they may need to get smaller or there may be fewer of them. Or again, maybe we move to a future where we don't even have particular academic institutions for these purposes at all. I realize this is uh, some pretty big stuff I'm talking about here, that this would be a some pretty fundamental changes in the way that we do theological education. But I think it's a part of recognizing the moment in which we live, the pressures that are being exerted on the, not just on the church and on Christians, but on other institutions that want to be Christian or call themselves Christian and recognizing the tactics that the enemies of the faith use and how they've been able to even use something like accreditation that was supposed to be a good thing and serve a good purpose, uh, basically use it to be corrupting and use it to promote false and godless ideologies in our schools and in our churches. So um, I wish I had better news to share. I wish that I could be more uh, positive and encouraging, but... Uh, Anyway, um, yeah, this is the moment we live in, and we need to be uh, we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves as we deal with the world in which we live. Um, I do think one thing, regardless of where we go from here, we definitely need closer church oversight in the seminaries. Um, for one thing, I think that the churches need to know like these sorts of issues, what's going on. I'm guessing there's a good chance before now, if you're listening to this, you never heard of accreditation at all. Or if you did hear of accreditation, you just kind of thought, as with other things we've talked about today, that it's an unquestioned good. It, it's how we know that our schools are good and how we know that they're doing their job. And yet you see that, well, all is not well in accreditation world. So people need to know these issues and these pressures and the churches need to know them. So as they're thinking about schools, supporting schools, sending their students to schools, they know what's out there and they know what to look for and they know what they're dealing with. Um, I, I think as one example, maybe something that we need to see more of, I think of the Reformed churches in the United States. It's a small German Reformed denomination. I mentioned them earlier because uh, they're closely tied to Heidelberg Seminary here in South Dakota, and they have a lot of churches here in the Dakotas. Um, but they actually have a denominational list of approved seminaries. They send their guys to seminaries, they visit them, they sit in on classes, they talk to the people, and they basically approve or disapprove seminaries as to we want our students going to these places or we don't. Um, I think that would be a good thing for denominations and churches to pursue, 
These are the schools we like. These are the schools that are doing what we think they should. And these are the ones that aren't. Um, you know, uh, maybe kind of harsh because you're going to have to unlist some things when you find out what's going on. But again, the peace and purity of the church is at stake. Um, so, yeah, I think denominational visiting and approving of seminaries is one thing. I guess just don't call it accreditation if because ATS will throw the book at you for that. But, uh, yeah, closer church oversight. And, yeah, it's people in the churches just need to uh, study these things and get to know these things and realize what's going on in the seminaries because it's not all the rosy picture that uh, the people in the seminaries want us to believe. So, on that happy note, um, thank you for... Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of Once for All Delivered. Thank you for joining me. I'm here by myself. Uh, next time we'll get back to some maybe more regular comment, yeah, comment content, and we'll have Caleb back, uh, and we'll we'll get more back to business as usual. But I hope this has been helpful. You know, I'm open to your feedback. If you think I'm crazy, I might be crazy, but am I crazy because of this? Uh, you can contact us, social media at OFAD Podcast, email OFADpodcast at gmail.com. Um, various ways to get a hold of us if you have feedback, if you have questions, if you have comments. Uh, I don't know if we're done with this issue or not. We'll see if uh, this is something we may need to dive into deeper. But I at least wanted to get some of these issues and items out there uh, so you, we can start to think about them as as Christians in an ever increasingly hostile world that opposes Christ and opposes his word, uh, not everything that seems friendly is, and we may need to have some hard discussions in the future about uh, what we're doing as a church and how we're even training up the next generation of ministers. So anyway, thank you for joining. Uh, this has been Once for All Delivered, and uh, we hope you'll join us again next time. Yeah, next time. Kill time. Still killing time. Anyway, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once for All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding members, Eric and Kathy Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.